You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Anarchist Welcome to Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscan, and as you saw at the beginning of the program, I did a slip-up. I uh, was thinking I was doing another program, but that's life as you get older. Now, I've got an extraordinary <laughs> guest. Obviously, all our guests are extraordinary. I've got uh, Dr. Greg Polgrain, all the way from the land of Bielke Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Greg. Hello, Joe. How are you? Good, good. Look, look, we asked two questions on the program. You've got 54 minutes to answer. And uh, there's no community announcements. There's no ads. I'm sorry. So you'll have to be on your feet, okay? And hopefully nobody mm. rings you during the interview because that's what yes, happens. Yes. <laughs> now, just to orientate our listeners, uh, what year were you born, Greg? 52. Oh, you're a year younger than I am. Isn't that extraordinary? Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, have you been in Queensland all your life? Born in Brisbane. Right. But, uh, left. Well, I started off in law at UQ, and uh, yeah. then I had to go. To, went to Europe for ten years to sort of right. unlearn everything I'd learnt. I think, right. and uh, right. came back and started again. Then, all right. Well, <laughs> let's start at the beginning. Uh, this is a question I ask all my uh, people I've interviewed hundreds over the years: is uh, what's the um, first thing you can remember about being on planet Earth? Good old Brisbane. <laughs> Born in Brisbane, but uh, moved to. Southport, which is the Gold Coast, I yes, suppose you call yeah, it now, yeah. Southport anyway, yes. uh, within the first year. And the first memories I have there are, I think, swimming. Southport's a wonderful place to swim. Mm. My mother was there swimming in black swimming costume. Mm. That's one memory. Mm. And then the other is looking up at telegraph wires, I think. Mm. And I could hear a noise, and it's the wind blowing through the telegraph wires, sort of whirring. And I remember thinking, that's the wind. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and those two really are my first two memories. Oh, my goodness, the phone's ringing already. Yeah, you just ignore it. Don't worry. Yeah. Just ignore yeah. it, and, and, and we just keep talking, and they stop, and they stop. Okay. Yeah, don't worry yeah, so, yeah. yeah, so that was an early memory of Southport. But yeah. yeah. I suppose my father in those days was in the bank, a bank officer, the old-style bank officer. Right. He used to get transferred around, and from... Southport, we went to Toowoomba, mm-hmm. to Wanton, Gympie, and then Cairns, where he retired. Right. And uh, your mum, what, uh, was she uh, did home stuff, or was she... Uh, Welsh. She was born in Cardiff. Cardiff, oh, right. She never and, spoke uh, any Welsh to you, did she? <laughs> <laughs> she came out when she was very young, two years old, oh, I think. Right, but, right. 
and her mother died on the way out. So mm. she was, yeah, she had that difficulty of starting off life without a mother, I think. Mm. She was um, from a family with a lot of doctors and things in Wales. And uh, I've got on my wall in the living room, I've got a map of plan or something of one of the houses. Beautiful house in Cardiff, but the story that goes with that was that the doctor was one day came race, came racing into the house. This is an eighteen something, mm. and he took all the sheets off everybody's beds, and they thought he'd gone a bit bonkers, you know, right. <laughs> crazy man. But what he was doing was a big coal mining disaster, right? And he just raced upstairs without telling anybody. He just took all the sheets that were used to be used as bandages, mm. and he just ran up the street carrying, you know. 20, 20 sheets, and that's my memory of uh, her uh, uh, god uh, grandfather, I think, yes. Mm. Uh, her father, grandfather. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, born in Cardiff many born years ago, Cardiff. same as Shirley Bassey. Right. I, I went to Cardiff for that reason, right. well, possibly because Shirley Bassey came from Cardiff, mm. but um, the... Uh, just to visit through. I've only been there once to, to Wales. It's a beautiful place, you know, green valleys, as they say. And uh, we've got some relatives over there whom I, well, I didn't know there were relatives at the time, so I found out later. And they said, yes, yes, please come over. They've, they've, they've got dairy and uh, what are they called? Bed and breakfast for oh, about right, three, right. three or four extra buildings. Right. And uh, we're both related to some fellow in the 12th century. Right. <laughs> Right. So he's, he's quite some prince or some fellow who fought yeah. the British, you know. Yeah. And they said, yes, yes, it's true, We're, we are yeah. related to Prince so-and-so, but we've still got to milk the cows in the morning. You know? <laughs> That's right, <laughs> which is unpleasant. You know, look, uh, a lot of the stuff you're saying is very familiar to me because I was born in Brisbane in 1951 and I spent my first right. 24 years in Queensland. So I'm... Um, very familiar with the situation. It's going to be interesting as we go along. This little dis- you must have gone to UQ, did you? Exactly. So that's what I mean. We, we may have been at the same uh, big meetings. Yeah. 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 So we'll, yeah. we'll find out as we as we meander along. Do you have any brothers and did, sisters? Well, I was just going to ask you, Tuttle. Did you know a Tuttle in or a Steel uh, doing medicine at that time? Uh, I They're started classmates. Steel. I think I remember 1970s when I started medicine. Right, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, 1970, I do remember a steel, definitely. Uh, yeah. Tuttle, maybe. But see, I've never gone back for a, a reunion. I'm waiting for the 50th reunion to see if, how many of us are still alive. <laughs> he ended up doing, what did he do? Gynecology, I think, in Lismore, yeah. Did he? Ah, yeah. Uh, no, but I, I'm, waiting, um, I'm waiting for the 50th reunion anniversary and then I said I'd go <laughs> they've been asking me to come for years and I say no no I'm not interested but at 50 another five years that's because we graduated in 75 that crew yeah oh, yeah I had a school reunion recently like that and yeah. oh my goodness we've all gone in such different directions it's amazing yeah it is amazing uh, yeah. Yeah. the only reunion I went to was a 25th a high school reunion, and uh, fought after yeah, that. Yeah. I, I don't want to do that. You stopped, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, said, I said, where's what's his name? It was a tough school I went to, a state school. I said, what's his name? Oh, he's in, uh, he's in Bogger Road. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and I said, where's what's his name? Oh, he was in prison for rape. We don't know where he is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
yeah. and I didn't expect that to be honest. Now, getting, yeah, getting back to you, uh, where did you go to primary school? Primary school? Oh, oh gee. Um, Toowoomba, Toowoomba. All right, yeah. First grade one, I remember. So I think Santa Claus arrived on a golf buggy coming up the green. Yeah, yeah. I said, that can't, that can't be right. Yeah. <laughs> You're questioning it even then. <laughs> yes. Uh, but mo- mostly in Gympie. Uh-huh. I, I did primary school. Well, that's my Elsie the dog. But sorry, no, um, no, don't worry. Yeah, prim- most primary school in Gympie was grade, grade what grade something three till grade eight, I think. Right. And I got I got pushed up a grade, and with the result that I sort of went through school. Some of the kids in the class were two or three years older than I was. Right. Uh, so, so you, but, were cons- um, you were considered to be a bright boy. That used to happen to the bright boys. I remember that. Oh, I think I just, yeah, they, they couldn't be bothered working out the paperwork, and I just pushed me into the easy class. I think that's all. Right. <laughs> Grade three, I started. Yeah, uh, in in Gympie, right. yeah, in the Quite. and spent whoa, nineteen sixty-four or something, five, four, and then went to Cairns for secondary school. Right. So I've got that nice demarcation point between primary and secondary is yeah, well, two different yeah. locations. Yeah. Well, your dad did the right thing by you there, didn't he? Or was it just luck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, luck, really. Luck, right. So, so um, Cairns, Cairns is yeah. a beautiful place in those days. It's a tourist mecca now, but mm. I, one thing I remember about Cairns was the main streets were filled with these giant trees, and the trees were filled with birds, absolutely mm. chocked mm. with beautiful mm. red and green birds. Mm. But you don't you don't get them now. Yeah, right. not quite as much anyway. You remember the mud flats and the mud crabs? Oh, they're still well, mostly still there. Yeah, mostly yeah. still there. Yeah, because we used to, uh, I used to go up there when I was a teenager, and uh, we'd go yeah. out in the mud flats and uh, go crabbing that type of thing, which obviously yeah, I see. idyllic. The place yeah. was. We we never even left the front, closed the front door, let alone locked it. We didn't mm. even close the front door at night time. Mm. You can't even imagine that now, can you? No, you can't really. So yeah. you went to high school there. Was it a public or a private high school? It's a place called St Augustine's. It was Maris Brothers. Right, uh, right. And I was a bit of a, oh, God, how I survived, I don't know, because I I remember uh, in grade, up to grade 10, it was all right, sort of, you know, but I think the hormones kick in and I decided school wasn't really for me then. Mm. <laughs> and And I remember... I had a slight accident with my mother's Volkswagen car in grade 12, and I, I spent the last uh, term or two in boarding school. Right. And I remember sneaking out one night to see Bonnie and Clyde, you know, which, oh, yes. I mean, you can you can get expelled from <laughs> doing that. Uh, so, I, yeah. Mm. But anyway, I managed to scrape through school and survive. Right. And... Uh, my friends, we all went in different directions. We, we, I think, in that particular school, we started the tradition, which is common here now. Of when you finish school, you have this almighty celebration. But our year in Cairns was the one that started that first, which yeah. is surprising. One of the students' parents had a beach house, so we, we the whole the whole class went out to the beach house, which unfortunately was next door to a hotel. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. So that would have been an ideal that... location for an end of year celebration. So that would have yeah. been what nineteen seventy or 
69. We 69, finished 70 69. was my first year at uni. So you were uh, actually pushed up. That's right, you were pushed up a year. Because yeah, yeah, I'm, well, yeah. I'm older, I started uni in 1970. Yeah. So, so, so a good w- class. Look, it's, yeah, it's unusual. I'm, look, let's, 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 let's be realistic. In 1970, it was unusual for Queenslanders to go to university. It started because you could get a, a Commonwealth scholarship if you, you know, you didn't yeah. have the money. Uh, were you a Commonwealth scholarship student? No, I... No, I said to struggle because of my uh, last year or so. I uh, oh. I lost interest in physics and chemistry. Uh, chemistry was okay, but physics I just mm. didn't get along with the teacher. You see, mm. and uh, he hated me, and I hated him. It was quite mutual, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> and he was the guy who caught me coming back that night when I went out to see Bonnie and Clyde. Right, and right. He, he just about had me round the throat, you know. Yeah. But I, the principal intervened and said. <laughs> It's all right, it's all right, go back to the dorm sort of thing, you know, yeah. and save me a fate worse than death. Yeah. You realise that we sat for the same exams? <laughs> because I, I oh, well, I did Italian as well. Well, I, I did, I did, what did I do? I did, his, I did French, English, obviously, yeah. I did history, physics, chemistry, maths A and maths B. Would mm. be very similar to what you did, was it? Yeah. 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 We would have said in, exactly in the Italian. This, yeah. Yeah, in the Italian exam, our oral exam, you know, they give yeah. you an oral. Yeah. And I, I uh, was the fellow was sitting next to me. We had this fruit company next door called Hanisch's. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the rest of the class who were doing Italian were Italian. Italians, you know, they were all fluent. <laughs> yeah. And I was the only one not fluent. So he was rushing off at the same pace of Italian. And he looked at me and he must have said, hello, you know, this guy doesn't know what's going on, you know. <laughs> And and he sort of pointed next door and said, Hanishes. <laughs> and he sort of gave me a big tip and I knew what he was talking about. You know, I could follow it then. Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so he helped me a bit with that right. uh, test. Yeah. So then you moved to the uni- to Brisbane to go to the University of Queensland because that was the only university in Queensland in those days. It was, yes. Yeah. I, I don't think uh, UT hadn't started. and uh, No, it hadn't started then. No, no. no. No, well, it was quite amazing because I was always interested in English language and poetry and everything. I used to put on the school notice board uh, things about uh, my brother Jack. Do you remember? Did you oh, do my yes, brother Jack? we did. My brother Jack. Yes. Well, well, I I used to put notices about that on the and then poetry etc. And so I did know one or two Queensland poets at the time. Mm-hmm. I was putting their publications on the, on the wall, just notice boards. And when I came down to Brisbane, I had by plane and got a bus over to university where I was staying. The person sitting next to me on the bus was one of these poets that I knew, and right, that, just right. purely by coincidence. So I said, oh, hi, how are you? And he was so surprised that some some student from <laughs> grade 12, student yes. from Cairns would actually know he existed in and know his poetry, you know. So he was, so he's quite pleased to talk to me for that trip out to St Lucia. You know? right. But it was a, quite a coincidence for me. I thought it, yeah, it was a very good sign. But um, well, it was a small yeah, place, I, Brisbane, in those days. It was a small it was, place yeah. as, far, as far as the so-called intelligentsia was concerned. It was almost incestuous, really. Yeah. Yeah, you started yeah, with the, law, did you? You said arts law. Yeah. Arts law. I, I never really got interested in law. I, uh, conveyancing and divorce was all I could see. A little sign outside, the, you know. I said, "Oh, <laughs> this isn't for me," you know. Yeah. And I, I did a year and a half and finished off 
later with I did I liked English I did I think mm. my mm. Yeah, eternal sign of the wasted youth I suppose I did every English subject that UQ offered right. which is yeah, not a claim to fame really right. but I I uh, sort of lost interest in, in even that in even university at one yeah. stage I couldn't see the point so I decided to go overseas what, what year what year how long did you last at university for well I I did a year and a half of law then Bought a ticket on Thursday and left so you did 70, on the Monday for Europe. So you did, seven, back, you did 70 and 71, uh, half a 70. And then came back later and finished off. Yeah, but later. I just, I'm just interested in 70 and 71 because they were quite uh, interesting. Yeah, Vietnam. Just, yeah. Very interesting times. Were you there when they... Moratorium. Uh, yeah, but were you there when they burnt down the uh, trucks that belonged to the Army Reserve, which was on, on campus? Or was that just after you left, I think? What I remember was great bonfires in the in the... In the yeah. campus area, you know, in That's the middle right. of the university. And I thought, wow, this is a bit different to Cairns. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the cafeteria was always a buzz. Yes, yeah. A buzz. There's always and, people. Because in those days, you didn't have continuous assessment. I mean, that's that's the death, I think, of radical politics <laughs> is continuous. You just sat at the end of the year. For, you sat at the end of the year. If you passed, you passed. If you didn't, you, you know, you, you did something yeah, else. I mean, so many times I remember starting at 6 o'clock dead on a Thursday night to do the final assignment and it's to be handed in by five o'clock Friday sort of thing. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. You just you just work straight through to four thirty and come right. back and collapse then. Right. Now I'm gonna ask so you, I suppose that's it's not yeah. the way to do it, is oh, it? I think I think it was a better way to do university. This <laughs> continue I know you're an academic and I'll talk about that later on, but this continuous assessment I think killed everything, you know. Killed the yeah. joy of going yeah. to university. But getting back to you, how did you get the money to go overseas in the middle of seventy one? You know what? Oh, well a lot of people have asked me that. Well oh, that's why I'm uh, asking you now, can you tell us or were you a gambler? Well it, it, they say, you know, who's supporting you, mate, you know. Oh yeah. Uh, which yeah. which agency's putting money in your pocket? Oh, right. <laughs> But um, actually, I've done it all by myself. Right. I, when I was a student for the last few years, I was working in a Saturday and Sunday nights in a rehab centre, right. which is helping people who've had accidents and mm-hmm. you know getting in wheelchairs and walking around and things mm-hmm. on a Saturday and Sunday evening. So it was double pay or something, you know. That's right. And it was quite quite good. But then a union man came along once and said, "We're just checking through, you know, how much you're being paid. Are you being paid the right amount?" and Mm-hmm. He checked through and said, "You're being underpaid." I said, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> and he he said, "Because it's Saturday and Sunday, and because it's late, and because it's this and this, you yeah. actually deserve a bit more." You know. Mm-hmm. So he ended up putting quite an amount because I've been there for several years, quite an amount of extra money, and that sort of helped me get overseas. Yeah. But it was difficult in in retrospect. I remember one you'll be familiar with it, but I wasn't because the very first day I worked there, this fellow had a an epileptic fit, but it was a grand mal, you know, yeah. and he's, mm. he's, he's blue in the face, and I had mm. to rush around to look for oxygen mm. to keep the poor fellow alive, I think, but got yeah. it to him, and, and that was day one, you know. I thought, yeah. wow, this is going to be difficult. But it ended up, I stayed there so long, I was sort of picking the people to work there, hiring and firing, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you're kind of um, lucky you actually found that oxygen bottle because there was one thing about... Co- Queensland Health in those days, it was very <laughs> underfunded and under-resourced. It was just extraordinary. I remember the first day I, uh, I started my internship at the Royal Brisbane Hospital, um, my pager went crazy, and I rang mm. up the registrar and I said, what's going on? 
I said, I got a call from Ward 2 South, North. I said, I've got eight calls, and it's only five. He says, oh, it's all right. It's the death round. I said, what do you mean the death round? And he said, well, people die overnight in, in hospital, and you as the resident have got to certify they're dead or they can't remove the bodies. Because all they had in those days was one nurse at the desk who sat at the front of the ward, and you'd have 25 or 30 patients in a ward, all in a common ward. You know, and that was it. It was amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So, what, all right, everybody wants to go overseas when they're young. So where did you head off to? Well, I, I went from Brisbane to London. Mm. And uh, in those days, you know, people were still going over the first time. So they're keen to look at the Alps, like the Swiss Alps when the plane goes over. And it's amazing. In re- the, the pilot managed to tilt the plane slightly, you know. Right. So the pe- people on one side got a better look. <laughs> 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 and and he called out on the on the loudspeaker. He said, "Look, well, it's been like this because everybody's over there looking at the window, and the, you can see what's happened to the plane." He said, "It's all tilted <laughs> over on one side." <laughs> <laughs> that was his little joke. <laughs> he would have done with every flight. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I had an uncle in well, BOAC it was in the fifties. British was uh, that Boeing yeah. something aircraft corporation. British Overseas Air Bri- oh, Corporation. British overseas, right. he, he used to fly over to London from from the Gold Coast or somewhere down there, yeah. and he was as he was in charge of Qantas Air Sea Rescue later yeah. on. I think. Yeah. He, he was he was the guy who invented that uh, raft that. Pops out of the side of the plane, then it goes into water, and everybody oh, right. slides it down. Oh, and, and every saves, you know, supposed to become a raft and save everybody. Mm. But he was, a, he had such a sense of humour because my sister was always very keen with this fellow. He used to fly right over our house in Southport, <laughs> and and he'd say, next time he, my sister was Patricia, and he said, I'm going to throw out twenty two shillings, you know, out the window, yeah. and it was land in, land in the yard, you know, and so. Yeah. She's waiting at the top of the steps, waiting for this plane to fly over, you know. And it flies over, and then she runs downstairs, and my goodness, there's two shillings because he dropped it when he was leaving, you know. Right. And he said, he'd say yeah. later, yes, I saw you waving. I was waving out of the plane, too, you know. <laughs> All this, you know. I saw you pick up the two shillings. Yeah. Yeah. And she. She went through when she became when she turned forty. She became a pilot herself. She oh, loved right. it so much. Oh, Ended right. up flying aerobatics and teaching people to fly. And, oh, oh, amazing! He was an inspiration for right. Uncle John. Right. Yeah. How long did you last in Europe for? Um, six months, I think. Six I, I landed in. I lasted two days before I I went to Australia House and. Bought a mini miner van outside Australia. Yeah, that's what everybody. <laughs> classic does. case. Yeah, classic, know. classic. Yeah. I think I got over two hundred pounds or something like that, yeah. and uh, proceeded to proceeded to. Uh, well, I, I met some mechanic somewhere, and he checked it over for me just as a friendly gesture, mm. and uh, headed off. And then I went over to Paris and up to Amsterdam, then down to Athens, and. Uh, did you make it? Did you make it to the islands to, you know, gratify your my brother Jack? Um, hallucinations? I didn't go to the same island, but no. I did go to Crete. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. I stayed on Matala in Crete. Yes, and uh, oh, it was an amazing trip. Yes, really amazing. In fact, leaving leaving uh, Paris the first night, I uh, picked the hitchhiker. Somebody 
somebody put his face in the passenger window and said, how far are you going, Mooka? You know, yeah. Liverpoolian jumped yeah. in, yeah. and we ended up going to Athens together. You know, yeah. He played the mouth organ most of the way. <laughs> but I'm, I'm still in contact with him. This is 1971, mm. two or something. Mm. And uh, he's been visited uh, our house in Brisbane here twice. He's now got grandchildren. Right, that's <laughs> I, okay. yeah. I've got a photograph of me at Land's End with his first children on my shoulders. Right. And now they've got children. So, my goodness, you know, uh, this amazing. is really amazing. So yeah. I was in contact with him recently as well. Just, you know, he's yeah. uh, still kicking. Yeah, that's <laughs> so that's that's my first trip overseas. Right. I'm still in yeah. still in contact with a hitchhiker, which is a bit strange, I suppose. Well, that's, no, no, right. that's good. It just shows a good yeah. relationship. Now, obviously, you ran out of money, so you came back home. Well, I sold blood in Athens, yeah. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was in the queue there. I, I think I arrived in Athens with $2, I think. Uh-huh. $2 and nothing in a car. So first thing we did was get in the queue and we got $10. We used to sell the, sell the I forget how much blood it was, but yeah. the, the rumours going up the queue about these desiccated corpses found outside of the alleyway. <laughs> <laughs> We was terrified, you know. but it went all very, you know, it's all well done and everything was legal and whatever. But they paid for the blood, so I think that gave me a trip to to Crete. And I'd befriended two Greek students, and they uh, we used to do have this arrangement whereby I'd, they'd take me out for a meal at night, right. and then he'd say, "Well, my friend would like a loan of your car. He wants to." take his girlfriend out tonight, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so they'd use the car and they'd take me to a meal and it was a happy arrangement. I kept in contact with a Greek student for a while, but he disappeared after when the colonels, there was a... Well, yeah, the students, coup, but, yeah, the protest. Yes, and for some reason he stopped after that. I'm not sure what happened. I've never really found out. Yeah, because that's right. So it's a mystery. Because yeah. it was the Polytechnic in Athens, which is the centre of the revolt yeah. which overthrew the colonels in 1974-75. There were a number of yeah. deaths during that's that right. period. So who knows? Yeah. Who knows what happened? But I, so, yeah. to give you an idea of how yeah. naive this student from Queensland was, you know, mm. I was sitting with the Greek students in the middle of the square somewhere, yeah. or whatever they call it, the, uh, and these circling the the square, not circling, but walking around the block with these Greek soldiers with their, you know, the dresses, the, oh, yeah. I forget what you call them, with, with the arms, you know, yeah, yeah. a bit of going, whop, 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 in very serious fashion. And I said, oh, to the Greek student, I'm going to go over and say hello to these people. I've never seen anybody like this before. Yeah, yeah. And they raced over and grabbed me and said, no, 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 don't interfere. I'll just smash you with the rifle. Yeah. Said, what? You know? Yeah, yeah. Luckily, they stopped me because they just, they don't take anybody interfering, walking, yeah. uh, marching around the block. Yeah. So that's what life was like under the colonels, you know. Yeah, yeah. I remember like yeah. I went back to the Greek house, and the house next door was owned by a, bl- a man who was blind from yes. World War Two. He was yeah. he composed the national anthem for Crete. Right. So he came in while we're having lunch in the house. He mm. was there playing the bazooki with his son playing guitar, but he mm. was blind. Mm. And then after he played for a while, then he said, "Would you like?" to make any suggestions. Would you like to hear some music? You know? And I said, well, uh, the only one I knew, of course, Theodorakis. You know? yeah, yeah. And he, he said, oh, we can't play that because the colonels have 
banned it, yes. Forbidden. It's forbidden music, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, he, but he, then he said, but if you close the windows, maybe we could manage it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We, the house, the people in the house closed all the windows and doors, and then he went, da-da, da-da. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So when yeah. you went back to Brisbane, what did you do? I resumed studies for a while. What, arts law and, or uh, just arts? Just arts. Yeah, right. I, I couldn't see the point in doing law. Mm-hmm. My son did law, and yeah, he's in USA now. But mm-hmm. uh, I couldn't see the point in. I should have because international law would have been really what I need to to pursue what I'm what I've ended up doing you know, right. mm-hmm. in many ways. But uh, no, no, I'm happy with how it turned out. So I did English, double major, whatever whatever it was, and uh, and well, not then. Um, I got interested by accident, really, in Indonesia uh, by by finding a, a newspaper cutting, right. which which said, that, I mean, East Timor had been invaded by Indonesia, if you remember. I didn't yes. follow it very closely. I, I was aware right. of it. You know? mm. But then I saw a newspaper cutting saying that people in West New Guinea, that's Irian Jaya, yep. were moved from their highland location down to the coast after an earthquake, you know. Mm-hmm. I thought, that's a bit strange. I mean, they've been there thousands of years, but they don't know how to handle earthquakes. What's what's going on up there, you know? Right. Why are they shifting people around when they... This, was, know, during, so I started, this was during the arts what, degree or after the arts degree? Um, well, the, the, this is after, really. Well, towards the end. I was right. in um, mm-hmm. living in St. Lucia and... Yep. And uh, they're mixing... So it's a wonderful time to uh, to be uh, in Brisbane it was <laughs> music was interesting and yeah. life was uh, yeah, well, I remember we used to get we used to go to the RE you know the yeah. Royal Exchange the Royal Exchange yep 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 and it had at that time it had a dirt floor and yeah. everybody got together when they wanted to make it a concrete floor saying no 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 we like it as it is you know <laughs> yeah. well, so we were even protesting not to make the dirt into concrete for a floor we like the atmosphere yeah, in but those days was, people yeah, forget they think the Bielke Pearson era was just yeah. grey well but it was were... a law illegal illegal yeah. to walk around with, on the street in a group of more than three, I think. That's right. You get, the, you get arrested. Yeah, but the thing was that there was this, in the central city in Brisbane, St. Lucia, West End, there was a thriving counterculture during that period, you know? Yes. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a resistance. So after you graduated... Um, yeah, well, I, I decided... I got interested in New Guinea mm-hmm. and decided... Um, I, I did a little bit of historical research as well and found that the early Dutch navigators uh, going up along the northern coastline, I didn't go further back because there were British, there were French, there were Spanish, there were Portuguese even before the Dutch. Mm. But the early Dutch that I was reading about uh, was saying there was some used to be gold in the highlands and the gold was being brought down from the highlands to the coast by Papuans. They traded it with with the coastal Papuans, who traded it with Chinese, and we're doing this for centuries. You know, mm-hmm. so I thought, wow, I better, I better go up there and have a look. You know, this is amazing. Um, so I started to preparing a trip, and I realised it was it would be quite difficult. So I decided to go to Darwin because I'd never, I didn't, had never lived with uh, dark 
in people, Aboriginals, mm. or let alone PNG people, you know, mm. or even New Guinea people. Right. So I decided I'd better go and find out a little bit about Aboriginal culture before I go to New Guinea. So I spent nine months up in Arnhem Land and uh, getting fit, walking around in the bush and going paddling down in canoes and I remember running around at night around Darwin even uh, sometimes with a pack on the back with bricks and things and mm-hmm. sometimes I'd be riding a bicycle one night I was riding a bicycle in Darwin and you know like one o'clock in the morning or something racing around and I was quite fit but suddenly right next to me was about a pack of six angry dogs <laughs> and they, I, I got such a fright they just appeared out of nowhere mm. and i got such a fright i literally fell off the bike right. when i was i was still moving fairly rapidly you know? and i remember thinking as i was wow these dogs got me so angry and i was, I was <laughs> by the time i hit the ground i was ready to strangle the closest dog you know mm. and it's amazing they must have picked up this vibe straight away mm. and as soon as i hit the ground they scattered you know they just ran for their lives yeah Yeah. and i chased one and pursued him up the road a bit and threw this great chunk of road metal or something at him and uh this giant came out of the front door you know in (laughs) in darwin darwin people grow beards and shave off their hair it looks the head's upside down sort of (laughs) But uh, he said, everything all right, you know. I said, oh, yeah, no problem, mate, you know, (laughs) and walked off. But I was always surprised at the response of these bloody canines. I must detect this extrasensory perception they have of don't don't touch this person, he'll strangle you, you know. And they just scattered like frightened animals as soon as I landed. By that time, I was getting fit and I was preparing myself to go up to... uh, West New Guinea, which which I did. Right. Which, but, part, uh, which, which part? Of, which part of West New Guinea? Up well, I, I even when I left Cairns, I flew up to Fort Moresby. Right. I thought I'd I'd do the Kokoda Trail on the way over to West New Guinea, but mm-hmm. somebody I ended up getting meeting somebody in the control tower, and he said, "Ah, you can do that any time. Look, there's a flight going up to the Highlands." It's a free flight. You'd love it, you know. And mm-hmm. why don't you take it? So I agreed with him without asking too many questions. It looked like an opportunity. So I came along to the airport with my pack, by, which was half full of books and things. I shouldn't have taken so many rubbish, you know. Mm-hmm. So I this plane that they were going to fly me up to the highlands, Papua New Guinea highlands, was a not very big plane. And when I put my pack on the plane, it lifted up lifted up the wheels of the plane <laughs> it was a tiny plane yeah? mm. and the pilot it was Papua New Guinean but he just failed his commercial license test mm. he was he would it passed his pilot's license but not his commercial license he was actually a good pilot but he just didn't have the confidence you know? so they were sort of give a little bit of extra a few extra runs and he was going to have a British instructor with him but when I got on the plane and the pilot got in the plane and the navigator got on the plane, who was a seven-year-old boy, yeah. you know. He didn't have a navigator at all, in other words. Right. Uh, the British instructor came, walked across the tarmac and opened the window, said, oh, look, you don't need me, you know. Yeah. I was, he was going to fly in the plane <laughs> next beside us, you know. I said, oh, yes, I do, you know. 
And he said, you, no, no, I'm going to do some shopping, you know. See uh, you later, you know. So obviously so you, lived, you lived to tell the tale. Okay. Yeah, he, he, we got up there. It was a perfect flight. Yeah. And from there I went from Mount Hagen. I stayed for uh, two months in a in a, uh, a Highland village just to accustom myself to uh, mm-hmm. the uh, New Guinea New Guinea culture. And uh, that was quite interesting because uh, the head of the province heard some white fellows up there in the hills and sent somebody up to meet me. He said he, he wants me to stay in Papua New Guinea for 10 years and write the history of his province, you know, starting mm-hmm. from the year dot. Right. <laughs> Uh, no, sorry, I said, look, I'm actually going to West New Guinea, so I can't really stay right now. You know? mm. So I, I moved on and arrived in West New Guinea. For, in those days, you could fly from Wewak direct to Santani. They've stopped it. They've actually reintroduced that in the last six months. So it's been, how many years is that? Wow, 40 years. So You've had to, yes. there's been no flight, direct flight from PNG. So, to the other. so this was 1980, um, was it, when you flew into... This was... When did I go up there? 19... No, 1978. 78. 1978. Right. So, yeah, it's before people started even hearing about New Guinea. Yeah. So I wanted to go up there to look at this, as I mentioned, this gold this gold path that I'd found in history books. Yeah. But um, when, I, when I arrived in Jaipura... Um, all hell broke loose. I was as I was as the taxi was driving into the city. Apparently, about eight ten minutes before, three Papuans had been shot in the cafe, right. and these truckloads of troops were arriving and jumping out of the trucks as the taxi was coming in. These troops were jumping out of the trucks and running up, you know, to sort out the problem. So it was just pandemonium, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was my introduction to Jayapura, and I stayed for about a week a week and uh got the got the Jayapura Jakarta uh for inter island ferry right it was called the Tampomas Tampomas which was uh the same Tampomas was the big boat that sank in Indonesia a few years later but it was right. Tampomas 2 I was in right. Tampomas 1 right and now, but uh so I, I so you spent one from, week. You went spent one week there. Initially. One week in Jaipura, yes. Right. Quite yeah. amazing, really. Mm-hmm. And I, I was introduced to the problems and met some of the people and thought I should go over to the Netherlands mm-hmm. to do some more research because it was a Dutch colony. You know, the Dutch were there for, well, actually not for very long. They're in Indonesia for, for since since the early 1600s, but they only the Dutch had only colonised West New Guinea. Uh, Netherlands, New Guinea, they called it, really only after World War Two, mm. When they gave independence to Indonesia, they kept West New Guinea, mainly because it had gold. But uh, so people think perhaps the New Guinea people have been colonised for hundreds of years. No, not really. They're really only 10 years of colonisation in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that time, they tried to make them Dutch and prepare them for independence, but the squabble with Indonesia over sovereignty intervened and the Dutch were removed in 1962-63. But I went off on the, I went off on the boat uh, for two weeks and uh, ended up in Surabaya and I got in Jakarta. Then I got a train up to Bangkok 
And in Bangkok, I heard there was Aeroflot in those days, gave you two nights in Moscow. So I was going from Bangkok to Amsterdam with two nights free in Moscow, which was wonderful. But it was 20 minus 20 degrees. They forgot to tell me it was cold, you know. (laughs) So I had I had a polo neck sweater shirt and a tropical shirt basically, and I used to walk around the hotel in in Moscow with this tropical shirt. And people just look at me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what the hell? You know? But day. outside they said, "Don't stay longer than twenty minutes, otherwise your ears will freeze, freeze and yeah. fall off." Yeah. So your affair with uh, your love affair with uh, West Papua, uh, Western New Guinea, how did that continue? Well, when well. I was introduced in that one week I was introduced and then I went to the Netherlands and uh, met met a few more people there but um, I suppose I should say my long term trip all this was sort of on the way my ultimate goal was because when I was a school <laughs> school student in Cairns I'd read a book in the library there called um, The Old Man and the Sea. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, it's a yes, Hemingway. Yes. It, it got Hemingway, the Nobel Prize, and then I was very interested. I thought it was a good book. You know, Then I saw the, the Tracy, Spencer Tracy movie a few years later. It was an old 1950s movie. And, and it was actually filmed at Kohima Beach, which is just near Havana. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I've got to go there one day. <laughs> so really, this trip, through New Guinea and over to Europe and then was really on the way to visit Kohima Beach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are the sort of travel goals I used to have in those days. Mm-hmm. So in London, in the, well, I stayed for a while and did some research in the Netherlands, then went to London and decided I'd get a visa to go to Cuba, to Havana, to see, I wanted to see this beach where yeah. they filmed. So... I marched along to the Cuban embassy in London and the fellow, the ambassador said, uh, oh, congratulations, you know, you're the first person to apply. I said, what, what, what do you mean? Uh, he said, oh, we just changed the law last week, you know, that right. um, Commonwealth students, Commonwealth uh, citizens like Australia and yeah, yeah. UK, whatever, are now allowed to visit Cuba. You know, I did, had no idea. Right. I mean, the Cold War was raging and I, I didn't know that visits were restricted and you had to get all sorts of Admission. Yeah. I just marched in expecting you to get a visa. visa. Yeah. So, and he said, "You're the first person to apply." You know, when the law's been changed, I said, "Wow, that's quite a coincidence." He said, "Yeah, let's celebrate." You know, mm. so he reached up and got this bottle of Havana Club rum, and we had three nice Havana Club rums. It's the best <laughs> visa I've ever got. God. You know? <laughs> so, I, when I walked along the cold December streets in London uh-huh. afterwards. I was feeling, yeah, very quite yeah. warm. So did you get to Cuba? I did, yes. Yeah. Mm. Some fellow bought me a ticket in London. Right. It was a cheap ticket, and it was sort of his job was to sell the last seat on every flight or yeah. something, and yeah. so it was about a quarter of the price. Yeah. And I got down to, where did I go, via Fort Worth, mm. Mexico City, Merida on the Yucatan Peninsula, and then, and then from there I flew over to Havana. Mm. Spent one night in a hotel... But um, as you know, I wasn't sort of flush with money, right. so uh, I then had to find. I was basically searching for the family that 
Hemingway stayed with when he wrote the book, The Old Man of the Sea. And it took me two days, and I actually located them, would you believe? Uh And because in their house, they've got amazing photographs around the wall of Hemingway and in his younger days, and the son of the family has still got Hemingway's fishing line. Oh. I mean, that's probably oh. worth quite a lot of money at the, yeah. Uh, yeah, the All right. Look, auctions. All right, look, times, we've got about 10 minutes or so. I'd like to concentrate on your association with uh, uh, West New Guinea. Did West you? New Guinea. Yeah. Yes, well, I came back and uh, wrote, wrote a book. Yeah. Um, I came back from Europe came back from Europe in 86 right. and finished off the PhD, mm-hmm. started teaching uh, at on Southeast Asia and Indonesia and did a book, uh, did a book called, uh, what, um, well, through, through Kuala Lumpur, it was published, one book was published there called uh, uh-huh. Genesis of Confrontasi, mm-hmm. which showed that um, Sukarno did not start conf- Malaysian confrontation. Everybody blames him because they think he's a you know the fellow wearing the sunglasses and the Betsy right. whatever and right. aggressive. But he didn't start it. It was more to do with the foreign minister and things, and also some American and British intelligence people helped to start it. What I found out. So then, Genesis of Confrontation. I did Incubus of Intervention, which shows that when when Malaysian confrontation started, Kennedy needed to stop it to carry out his Southeast Asian policy. So he was going to make a visit to Jakarta in early 1964, but he was shot in 1963, November 63. Right. And I've started to investigate this, and when the US ambassador, Howard Jones, said in his book that an assassin's bullet prevented Kennedy from from making that trip, I thought, wow, that's that's can be interpreted two ways, you know, like it prevented him because he was killed, but they actually, from the sentencing, actually read, he's suggesting it was done deliberately. Right. So I started investigating this, and it, it's definitely a huge motive to stop Kennedy from making that trip because that trip would have ruined a, an intelligence plan for changing, kicking out President Sukarno, regime change in Indonesia, which happened in 65. But more than that, they were using the Indonesian political scenario, which involved the PKR, the Indonesian Communist Party, who weren't really nationalists. They're rabid nationalists, but yeah, ten, few were communists, but not really 20 million communists. Most of them were, were rice farmers. You know? But because they were so big, 20 million, 23 million, Moscow and Peking each wanted their support because Moscow and Peking were arguing. They were in the Sino-Soviet dispute. They were arguing over ideology. Mm-hmm. They wanted the support of the biggest party, Communist Party, outside Sino-Soviet bloc. So that's the PKI. But Dulles, Alan Dulles, who was Director of Central Intelligence CIA in USA, also cottoned onto this. And he figured if we can destroy the PKI, it will set Moscow and Peking at each other's throats which is exactly what his strategy turned out to be. Mm-hmm. And Kennedy's trip to Jakarta would have ruined this plan. So that's why the Joint Chiefs of Staff in America joined with Dulles to stop Kennedy's trip 
Mm. And this is a motive that hasn't been brought to the table in America. They've published so many books about Kennedy, it's embarrassing, I think, that they never seem to get anywhere. It's only because 10% of Americans even know about the existence of Indonesia. Mm. 10%. It's ridiculous. Let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Did you ever go back to West uh, West Papua? Oh, I've been there 25 times, yeah. 25 times. When was the last time you were there? February. And what did you you think of the situation? Oh, well, I was there uh, for a celebration, which is now a national holiday in in, in West Papua. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, Papua and West Papua, because it celebrates the arrival in 1855 of two German missionaries. Mm -hmm. And the people who brought Christianity to the Papuans, you know, so... And I happened to find out that one of the grand, grand, great, 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 great grandsons was living in Brisbane, would you believe? Right. So I got him to come over with me, and and uh, it was a big celebration. You know, like twelve, fifteen thousand people there when he was right. there for a, a big celebration in Manakwari. Yes. And uh, so that was in a few years ago, February. They have it every year, and I was there again in February this right. year. What do you think and, of the, the situation currently? Well. I noticed, I noticed in Manakwari at least, the par- two big parliament buildings had been burnt down. Right. And that was, that was after the accusation in Surabaya that some uh, two army guys called some Papuans monkeys. You know? So there was a huge response to that. And riots and burning. In Jaipura, hmm. there was lots of buildings were burning for, you know, all the way from Jaipura down to Abipura. And so many demonstrators, you know, lots of Papuans who were previously sort of sitting on the fence or even pro-Indonesian, you know. Once this happened, they just, it's, it's, uh, it's a sad case because Indonesia just does not seem to come to grips with the fact that uh, they've got to treat Papuan people as human beings, you know. I mean, I've spoken with ambassadors and top people in Jakarta and they just, when I say, look, why don't you sit down like the Irish did? They were fighting for 300 years, you know, mm. and they sat down and they were able to come to some sort of reconciliation. You have to listen to the other person, respect them and whatever, and then you can start talking, you know. But they will not do that. They do not respect the Papuans in that way, not enough to sit down and talk with them. They just want to use the military again and again and again. And it's to their, going to be to their own disadvantage. I've spoken with a lot, lots of high people in Jakarta and they've all said, look, we've already lost Papua. You know? It's just the army clinging to Papua because they make so much money out of Papua, you know. With yeah. timber, the illegal timber, it's hundreds of millions they're getting out. And it doesn't even benefit Jakarta, for goodness sake, you know. It just goes straight, all this illegal timber. Then they get the gold and so many so, businesses that the army have. Right. So you think basically Parliament and the uh, President really have no power of about what's happening in Papua? In Jakarta, you yeah. mean, the parliament. In, yeah, it's yes. mainly a military Jokowi. fifter. Yes, yeah, well, we were all hoping big things when Jokowi was elected, you know, mm-hmm. one, two terms ago now, because there was a civilian face and non-military, but the military are really in a very strong position in Jakarta now. It's, and it's, as people, some scholars in uh, Canberra have pointed out that it's, we, we refer to Indonesia as democracy, but it's sort of fraying very quickly, you know, and that mm-hmm. description will 
probably won't last much longer. Right. But uh, what but percentage? What, what percentage? Just, just, just a question. What percentage of the parliament is that the seats are reserved for the military? Are they still reserved oh, for the military? That's, by the by, that's gone now. That's gone, has it? But they still but, have but extraordinary influence, do they? Oh, extraordinary because of local influence on parliamentary members. You know, mm. there's a. When a, when a member of the army stands for parliament, he supposedly has to resign, take off his uniform, resign, and if he's lucky, he's elected. If he's not if he's not if he's unlucky, he then if he's resigned, he shouldn't be able to go back in the army. But it's all you know changed. They they're even saying that they they need to take off the uniform now, mm. so they can just stand stand for parliament. As army people, wow. mm. the army's never gone back to the barracks when it should have, mm. and as a result, they've got this, uh, you know, territorial. They've got positions, army positions, scattered right across the whole archipelago, and more, more frequently, you find an army place than you do a local government authority. You know, so it's, Indonesian it's, military is more uh, structured to just keep order in Indonesia, it's not a credible military force. Is that correct? Oh. Or would you say well, that's incorrect? So large. Well, the Indonesian Navy are the only ones who've taken on China in the South China Sea. Right. Uh, they've actually fired at Chinese boats, you know. Mm. That's nobody, no Australian or US boats done that. But, oh. the, but the Indonesians have actually got into conflict, you know, right. because they don't want the Chinese pushing down. But now the situation post-COVID, or well, not even through it yet, but Indonesia, in COVID has just uh, devastated the Indonesian economy, really. Right. But And China is pushing at the door uh, to try to help Indonesia out of its economic plight. So right. uh, uh, Xi Jinping's got, I think, $92 billion in his top pocket. He wants to put that into Belt and Road in- infrastructure straight away with a whole lot more money on the way. Indonesia really doesn't have any choice. Uh, otherwise, they'd have, you know, the streets would just be full of people demonstrating. Right. I mean, they are now against this omnibus law, which is being introduced to favour Chinese investment. So they don't say it specifically, but that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chinese will basically become a stronger economic, possibly political force in Indonesia. And this is going to change change uh, the whole regional defence structure. I think Australia's still talking about quads. In fact, Scott Morrison's in Japan now, mm-hmm. talking about Japan, USA, and in India, and Australia is the quad, the new quad well, to take over from ANZUS, you know, yeah. which has been useless yeah. anyway for fifty yeah. years. Yeah, going, back to, this, going back to uh, West Papua. This quad to, idea, I was just yeah. going to say, is useless. Yeah. Well, will be will be yeah. proved to be useless because China will be in the strength to reckon with in Indonesia. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Just going back to West Papua for the last few minutes, do you think there's any movement in the independence struggle, realistically? Oh, yes. I um, My main focus is to, to stop the army from killing people, you know, human rights. Mm-hmm. And uh, the push for independence has come from all sorts of directions, but I don't even talk about that. All, I, all I'm trying to do is get the army, and I, this is why I can approach ambassadors and people in Jakarta, because uh, I just want them to stop wanton 
killing. You know, they just shoot anybody anytime they feel like, and no one does anything about it. And people people are puzzled about how many people have been killed. Wow, you can. Meanwhile, you used to know John Rumbiak years ago, and he had a list with names and addresses of 100,000. Mm. So that's how that 100,000 started. But then I said at the time, we both know it's more than three, two or 300, you know. He said, yes, yes, he knows, but we don't have their names and addresses, so we can't, you know. But actually, what I did for an encyclopedia a few years back was to compare the rate, comparative rate of growth of PNG and West Papua from 1960 to 2004, and then I transferred the rate of growth from PNG over to West Papua and estimated the population in West Papua should have been, in 2004, should have been 3.2 million. It was 1.8. Mm. And, okay, that accounts for people who were not even born because of the changed economic climate, whatever. But it gives you an idea. There's a huge deficit in the population, right. 1.8 million existing, and the projection that would have been without Indonesian interference, 3.2 million. I mean, that's about the same number of people missing as in the Armenian genocide. Yes, yes. So that gives you an idea of the number of people killed. Mm. It's too many, and Indonesia has to come to some understanding that if, they, if that they've got to stop this human rights, they've got to pay attention to human rights. You know, it's, yes. otherwise they're an unreasoning approach and they'll they're causing the biggest problem for themselves yeah. mm. well West Papuans have few friends they don't have a lot of friends out there in the real world well they depends they've got they've got a lot of what, little Nixon friends called it the richest richest piece of real estate in the world yeah. it's, it's got the biggest gold mine in the world it's got the richest oil black oil ever found in on the globe, you know, mm-hmm. needs got no sulphur yeah. and uh, timber and whatever. Yeah, it's just got amazing potential. So they've got friends who like to get in, but whether they can that friendship can benefit the Papuans is really the Papuans themselves have to realise their real situation mm-hmm. and uh, and adopt a strategy that suits their situation yeah. all right look i'd like i'd like to thank you now if people want to learn more regarding the uh, books you've written on the uh, on the situation uh, how do they get access to them uh well um the only the book that i'd like people to read now would be jfk versus alan dully's battleground indonesia mm-hmm. and apparently it's well i've got a copy an ebook copy from online Amazon but there is a paperback should be available shortly I don't think it should have been coming out 17th yesterday but the publisher this morning told me there's a bit of a hiccup but there is a paperback will be coming out shortly so you can go online Amazon and order a paperback it's $20 something you know mm-hmm. so it's not too, not so expensive Amazon's cheap and it's distributed by Simon and Schuster so they keep the price right down it's not like books in Australia where you know we're 60 70 80 dollars or more is there down in the 20s and 30s I think this, mm-hmm. this book okay. but um, it's available online Amazon you just type in JFK versus they put VS for versus 
versus Allen, A-L-L-E-N, Dulles, D-U-L-L-E-S, and that book should come up. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.